Well, good morning, church. I want to encourage you to grab those Bibles and open them up uh, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As you're doing that, I just wanted you to know that Typically, I go through a lot of uh, scripture with you guys. Today's no exception, uh, but know that if you'll grab a bulletin on your way out, then I have—I think I have all the scriptures listed there for you. So uh, they're all provided for you, and uh, eventually we'll get ourselves to Romans 3. Can you get me to the first slide, please? Thank you. Uh, as you're doing that, then a uh, quick question for you. How many of you recognize this individual? Raise your hand if you recognize him. Come on. Now, it would be really embarrassed if I called upon you and said, who is it? And then you had to give your name out loud. I'm going to help you out. For those that don't recognize him and for those that do, you will know that this is Johann Sebastian Bach. That is him. How in the world do we start off today's message with a little bit of Bach? I will tell you, uh, Canaan would have preferred that I started today's message out with Beethoven, because in his world, he many days likes to wake up and pretend like he's Beethoven for the day, which is awesome. But today, I couldn't really work Beethoven into the, the sermon, but Bach sure does fit really nicely this morning, because how many of you were aware that at the age of 48, uh, Bach received a three-volume translation of the Bible that was written by Martin Luther. Oh, he loved that three-volume set. He, he, he read through it and poured into it as though it was a, a long-lost treasure. He, he would go through it in underlined passages, uh, correcting errors and the commentary. Uh, he would often write out his own commentary uh, in, in, in the volume himself, uh, a couple of places that are particularly interesting. One comes uh, from First Chronicles chapter 25. I think typically, if we're honest, most of us would get to First Chronicles chapter 25 and look at it and just try to read it as quickly as you can so that you can get to the next chapter. Uh, in that, you'll see that uh, there is the listing of the number and the services of the temple musicians, and then there's uh, the division of musicians, and in First Chronicles chapter 25, Bach writes out to the side, and he says, this chapter is the true foundation of all God-pleasing music. You get to Second Chronicles, and Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse number 13 uh, there it says, in unison, when the trumpeteers and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, when they praised the Lord saying, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. To, to the side of that text, he writes the words, at, at a reverent performance of music, God is always at hand with his gracious presence. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but over the course of his life, Bach composed more than 1,000 pieces of music. A large majority, I believe it's around 75% or so of the music that he composed, he composed as church music. D 
Did you know that Bach spent a, a great number of years leading music in church? Unfortunately for him, uh, the pieces that he composed were often considered to be too showy in order to be played in church. I mean, can you imagine that there were church members and even some leaders that would complain about music? Seems so long ago that we would complain about music and music styles. I'm so glad we don't fight over things like that anymore. But hearing the complaints of the people, uh, I want you to notice what what Bach had to say in, in respect to their concerns about his music. He says that the main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do this with music that is simple. I haven't chosen to use a simple style, but my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to God. This honors God no matter what music style I use. Here, Bach clearly proclaims that the main purpose of his music was to glorify God. Like, I wonder if we could say that is true for our own lives. The main purpose of fill in the blank, what is it that you do? The main purpose of my whatever is to glorify God. Mike also went on to say that all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music but only a devilish hubbub what he would say. We're told that when Bach would sit down to begin to compose a new piece of music, he would write the letters JJ at the top of the page. JJ stood for Jeshu Juva, which is Latin for Jesus or Lord help me. Then as he would compose and write out the music, at the end of it, he would write the letters SDG. Uh, those stood for soli de gloria, and that is the, the phrase, the Latin phrase, to God alone be the glory. As we gather here this morning, we do so in order to unpack and understand this fifth foundational truth of the Reformation, and that is to God alone be the glory. And so as we begin, I want you to look and to listen to the scriptures as they present this theme in the Word of God. We'll get to Romans chapter 3 eventually, but before we get there, I have some other scriptures that I want to show you. We'll begin in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Verse number 10 says, Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Then when you get to verse 24, it says, Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all people. Uh, Psalm chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of uh, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. You get down to verse number 9, it says, The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everything says glory. Isaiah chapter 6 
says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah chapter 24. Say they rise their voices, they shout for joy, uh, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. I mean, there's so much. Isaiah 43 says, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Oh, then Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water cover the sea. I mean, that's just a small sampling of what we find in the Old Testament. And we read through those, just those brief ones this morning, and we see that we exist, all of us exist, in order that we might behold the glory of God. Not only that we would behold the glory of God, but that we would experience the glory of God. That we would magnify the glory of God. That we would proclaim the glory of God. That we would live for the glory of God and for God alone. It is for His glory that God created the world and everything that exists. It is for His glory that God planned and executed his plan of redemption. It is for his glory that God is moving all of history into a future climax where Jesus comes back. It is for his glory that God is establishing a new heaven and a new earth. May you understand his own glory is the highest aim of God. His own glory is his only aim. You, you move that thought. It's not just reserved for Old Testament thinking or Old Testament writing. It, it transitions, and, and we see it in the New Testament as well. And so I'll give you a small sampling from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. May you understand, when we begin to talk about soli de gloria, we're talking about to God alone be the glory in respect to our salvation. It's in reference to salvation that is found in and through Christ and Christ alone. When the reformers spoke to our salvation being to the glory of God alone, they were emphasizing the grace of God. Salvation is all by the grace of God. We're not going to look at it this morning, but we've already covered it in previous weeks in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We see the key phrase there in understanding that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, so that none of us are able to boast about our salvation. What that means is that God's grace in, in providing salvation eliminates the potential for anybody who belongs to him to boast in arrogance over the fact that, that they made the choice to accept Christ. You understand that, I'll speak personally, that, that my salvation is to the glory of God because God is the one that did it all. The only reason I made a good response to the gospel is because God and his sovereign election changed the disposition of my heart in order to affect a good response. I can take no credit for the response that I made for Christ because God did everything. He did it all. God not only initiated my salvation, he not only sowed the seed of faith in my life, he made sure that the seed that was sown in my life germinated in my heart, regenerating me through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you understand that this regeneration was a necessary conduit for the seed to take root and give spiritual life to my dead spirit self. I think that's clearly the reason why at the heart of Reformed theology is this belief, is this concept that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. I personally believe that this is clearly taught in Scripture, yet I am amazed, or maybe not so much these days, how it is not clearly taught within the church. A recent survey came out just uh, right about two weeks ago that kind of gives us insight into the state of the American church today. In this survey, the survey is called the State of Theology 2020. The survey was um, conducted through joint efforts between LifeWay Research and Ligonier Ministries. Uh, the, the survey poll was conducted uh, earlier this year, and the results were tabulated, and then they've just recently re released those results so that they can be viewed by anyone. And so in that, a series of questions were posed to individuals, and the response to those questions, you had five options to these questions. 
you could choose to either strongly disagree with the statement, somewhat disagree with the statement. You could say that you're not sure whether you agree or disagree with the statement. Or you could state that you somewhat agree or strongly agree. Those are your five choices. So all this information was collected, and then you have these overall results to all of these statements. And so what I want to share with you this morning is just a small sampling of what these results show us. And as a pastor, just as a believer in Christ, I find that these results are shocking, they're disturbing, it's frustrating, even heartbreaking when you begin to see how people are answering this. Now, this morning, what I'm going to show you are only the responses of those that profess to be evangelicals. So we're talking about those that profess to be Christ-following individuals in America. This is how they respond to these series of statements. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do have a small sampling for you. First one would be this. The statement is, God is a perfect being and cannot Make a mistake. Now, there's only one answer. Is God perfect? Does God make any mistakes? No. So, so, so the answer to that question is strongly agree. Somewhat agree means that you're not really sure which one of those is actually true or not. So the only proper response is to strongly agree with that statement. That's what the Word of God teaches. Yet evangelicals in America, only 80% of them say that they would strongly agree with that statement. Question number five says that the biblical accounts of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. And even they they try to help people out. This event actually occurred. That's 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 why we're here. And that's why we gather. Either it happened or it didn't. Like, did it happen? Did the event absolutely occur? Yes. There's only one answer. Strongly agree. And yet among evangelicals in America today, only 78, um, 76% of them would strongly agree with that statement. Question number 11 says, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. By nature, we are evil and wicked. By nature, we are enemies of God. And here the results are so frustrating. It is a direct result of the airways and the TVs being oversaturated with Joel Osteen-type theology. I want you to notice what the response is. Only 29% of evangelicals were able to answer that question correctly. Question 13, God counts a person righteous not because of one's work, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. And we've just been working through it. It is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are able to stand before our Heavenly Father. And yet, 60% would strongly agree. This one doesn't apply to you because you're here, so maybe. 
question or statement, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Yeah, there's no, no. And, and I'm saying this, and I know that there are people that are listening, and there are people that are watching this, and I'm going to, like, discourage them in this moment, because if you're relying this to, to, to fill your church responsibility and obligation, then you need to, like, disconnect, you need to log off, you need to, to, to repent, and you need to get into your car and drive and find a church and start to worship with local people. Now, it's unfortunate that good churches are hard to find, but may you understand, you don't get to give up on the church and say, well, there's just no good churches in my area, because why would we give up on the church when God hasn't given up on his church? So I say all that to you that are here. Thank you. But notice what the answer, the response was, only uh, 24% would strongly disagree with that. Uh, Let's work through some of these. We've got to get going faster. Uh, Question number 25. Um, The Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. That's what we started this whole series off on. Does it have the authority to tell us what we must do? It it is the only authority. This is it. And yet, among evangelicals, only 55% would strongly agree. Two more. Question number 34. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of my sin. That's it. The only way. No other option. Yet among evangelicals, only 72% would strongly agree with that statement. You begin to see why our nation is in a condition that it's in when the church can't even get basic theology correct. We're a mess. The one that kind of ties into what we're trying to deal with this morning, that is found in question number nine, question or the statement is the Holy Spirit gives spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. The question is, does spiritual life come first or does faith come first? Does spiritual life bring about faith, or does faith produce spiritual life? This is a difficult thing. I get it, but the Word of God does address it. And so the Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ, and yet 33% would strongly agree with that statement. And so how we got here, we started off with uh, the heart of Reformed theology is the belief that regeneration precedes faith. Spiritual life gives birth to faith, not faith gives birth to spiritual life. See, the alternative is to believe that a person in their fallen condition, in their spiritually dead state, The alternative is to believe that a spiritually dead person can in and of themselves generate or exercise faith on their own. In this view, a person responds to the gospel before the Holy Spirit changes the the disposition of their soul to bring them to faith. However, if this were to happen then that would mean that the glory of God would be shared. The result of this kind of thinking would agree that God is gracious in salvation, 
but grace and salvation is not enough of its own. There must be another element added to God's grace. And that's why they would say my response is, is absolutely essential. With this mindset, grace is not effectual. Grace does not stand alone. And, and if God's grace doesn't stand alone, then it's not a saving grace. I don't know how to try to be more clear in this other than say salvation is, is from beginning to end. Salvation is from the Lord. That's it. He gets all the credit and he deserves all the glory. Yes, I must respond. Yes, I must believe. Yes, I must receive God's gift of salvation. But in order for me to say yes to any of these things, my heart, first of all, must be changed by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. So leave your glory to God and God's glory alone. In, in making his case, now we're going to get to Romans chapter 3. You've had plenty of time to find it by now. In making his case for justification by faith apart from the law, I want you to notice what Paul has to say. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse number 21. says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Oh, this is the humbling verse for everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration... I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law, of works? No, but by a law of faith. Depending on your translation, verse number 27 might sound a little bit different, not to lose its meaning or its significance. Sometimes it just comes across a little bit uh, more clear. Like, I, I personally love how the New Living Translation renders verse number 27. And so I'll put this one on the screen. Verse number 27 says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it is based on faith. Which means there is no room for the glory of man to be brought into God's plan of salvation. That glory belongs to God and to God alone. Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, verse number 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing means if salvation was obtainable in any other way, if it was obtainable through works of the law, then we would have something that we could boast about. But the reality is we cannot save ourselves because we who are dead in our sins 
can do nothing on our own or in our own strength to do anything about that spiritual condition. But, oh, but to the praise of the Lord, according to Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, it says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you know that the salvation of sinners was God's idea. The accomplishment of that salvation is because of God's work. Not only that, the granting of salvation is because of God's grace. And then the fulfillment of salvation is a result of God's promise. I went kind of quickly. Some of you are writing it down. I'll say it one more time. That the salvation of sinners was God's idea. Then the accomplishing of that salvation is because of God's work, God's effort. The granting of salvation is because of God's grace. And the fulfillment of salvation is a result of God's promise. Remember, from beginning to end, like it says in Psalm chapter 3, verse number 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I'd love, I'd encourage you sometime today to even go back and read through John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus likens salvation to new birth. Now, can an infant take any credit in their own birth? No. And so we can take no credit for our being born again. That glory belongs to God and it belongs to Him alone. The Bible is clear that the act of being born again or, or, or the act of regeneration is a sovereign act of God. God's grace drew us to salvation. It is because of God's grace that we have been enabled to believe. Yes, we must repent from our sins. Absolutely. But it's only because God's grace enables us to repent. Yes, we're supposed to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it's only because God's grace enabled us to have faith. There is nothing that we can do on our own in order to secure salvation. In Romans chapter 11, Paul writes these words. Beginning in verse number 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And then in verse number six, I mean, verse number 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There are three prepositional phrases in that verse. It says from him, through him, and to him. And those three phrases say it all. Look at the first one, from him. From him indicates that God is the source of all things. I mean, everything has its origin or its cause in God. Scripture tells us in, in John chapter 1, verse number 3, 
that all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, so, first of all, everything has its origin in God. God is the source of all things. And then the second phrase, through him. Through him indicates that God is the sustainer of all that he has created. So God's the sustainer. He's the one that holds it all together. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, we see that God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all that he has created. And that third phrase, to him, indicates that God is the goal. God's the goal. All things exist for him and for his glory. Scripture tells us, Colossians chapter 1, you back up a verse, in verse number 16, it says, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That is why we exist. Using this paradigm, we ask the questions to ourselves, then how do we glorify God? How do we glorify him in our lives? give you some homework assignment we don't do this hardly ever those of you that are taking notes kudos to you i want you to write down some references if you would you ready i'll try to give these to you slowly i want you to read them uh, this week we'll start with john chapter 15 verse number eight and by the way these are not on the bulletin Uh, this is a last minute edition john chapter 15 verse number eight matthew 5 verse uh, verse 16 i'm sorry Matthew 5, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. I'm going to give you 10 passages to look up. Joshua 7, verse 19. And as you're looking these up, I would encourage you not just to read that verse and then to back up and to read the context in which that verse is given, right? So Joshua chapter 7, verse number 19. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. Romans 4, 19 through 21. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Slowing down. Going back to Romans 4, verses 19 through 21. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Ready for the next one? One person is. I'm moving forward. Great. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16. John chapter 17, verse number 4. John chapter 17, verse 4. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And then number 10, I believe. Yep, this should be your last one. Romans 15, verses 5 through 6. If you do not have 10 verses written down, See a neighbor or see me after the service and I'll help you find them. Why do I want you to read these 10 passages of Scripture? Because I think that helps us to understand what God has called us to do and to be and how we're to glorify Him. As you read through these things, this is what you're going to discover. That God is glorified when we bear much fruit. 
God is glorified when we do good works. God is glorified by our sexual purity. Oh, yeah, we need to, like, camp out on that one a little bit. But not today. We've got to move on. God is glorified when we confess our sins. God is glorified when we live by faith and not by sight. God is glorified when we proclaim his word. So it means we've got to know his word, love his word, live his word out. God is glorified when we appeal to his glory in the midst of our suffering. And God is glorified when we seek to do his will. He's glorified when we confess his son. And he's glorified when we reflect the characteristics of Christ in our lives. Some of you are writing those down. You're like, oh, slow down. No, that's what you're supposed to do when you read this week. You're going to discover all of that if you'll read that. And so the Bible says in Psalm chapter uh, 23, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 22, verse number 3, there it says that the Lord is enthroned on the praises of his people. Sound familiar? The Lord is enthroned on the praises of his people. I want to ask you, what kind of throne are you building for the Lord based upon your praises? What kind of throne are you establishing? He is enthroned on the praises of his people. So when, when the workday ends and you're still alive, praise him. When you're sitting down to eat a meal, you actually have something to eat and something to drink. Praise him. When you make it through the day and, and you and your loved ones still have life to live for his honor and for his glory, praise him. When you're going through the trials and the heartaches, man, praise him in the midst of that. Trust and praise him that he will see you through whatever he's led you to. He's faithful. Man, ultimately, to, to like end where we began, man, may we begin every single day with the mindset of Jesus, help me. May we live in great faithfulness throughout the day so that when we go to bed at night and when we retire from the day that we can reflect and we can know with great confidence that everything that occurred that day was solely de gloria to God and to God's glory alone. May you understand that you love him today more than you ever could imagine. May you do your homework this week too. With that being said, Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your great love and your great faithfulness. God, help us to seek to live our lives fully, wholly, completely for your glory, for your honor, that your name would be proclaimed and praised among the people. God, whatever needs to change in our hearts and in our lives to bring us in a right relationship with you, Pray that your spirit would bring that conviction. When the conviction occurs, Father, that we would humble ourselves and to recognize that, to confess our sins, repent from those sins, and seek to walk in righteousness. Father, may you be praised and may you be glorified by each and every one of us. Be with us as we go today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together. And as we're dismissed today, may God bless you.
May He go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always be with you. So don't be afraid. Go, glorify God, seek to make His glory known. And how do we do that as a church? We do that by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the preaching, teaching, and proclamation of his word and by serving one another in truth, love, and grace. Come on, church. Like, go and glorify him in all things. Amen. See you next time.